Welcome to This Week in Private Markets, a podcast by TAP. We give investors, allocators, advisors, and others a weekly digest that keeps you in the know about the news in private markets. Please see the show notes for relevant disclaimers. This is the week of December 4th, and this is what we at TAP saw in private markets. We'll start with the big deals of the week. Morgan Stanley raised almost $1.2 billion for late-stage growth investing, and Brookfield raised a monstrous record $30 billion for its flagship infrastructure fund. Now, let's jump into the main stories. First off, hedge funds and PE firms have been investing in single-family homes all across the U.S., and that has created some concerns about for homeowners. And now senators have picked this up and are essentially trying to introduce a bill that would basically ban the practice. So over a course of 10 years, hedge funds and large institutional investors would have to completely divest all of their single-family homes, basically 10% per year. And the, the bill is called End Hedge Fund Control of American Homes Act. And now I just have to point out that one of the people behind this is called Adam Smith. <laughs> right, yeah, the, the invisible hand is very visibly making some adjustments, it seems. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, I mean, it's probably got no chance of passing at all, right? I mean, it's just some guys who are getting some some points back at home for for uh kicking around the the the, the old specter of kicking hedge funds and PE funds out of real estate I'd imagine. Uh I don't know, I didn't see anything that kind of indicated that this had real legs as a bill. It seemed like oh, they they sponsored a bill and there's a few other people who are potentially interested. Um so sounds like they're trying to garner support for it. It's obviously a pretty uh crazy proposition and uh while on the head headlines of it seem, you know, like they'd be good for the average person, there are many, many things that having, you know, great capital allocators inside of um, real estate industry does. And so I think it would be pretty problematic to try and eliminate them completely, which is what this bill calls for. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure what the bipartisan support for this is, if there's any, um, if this does have a chance of passing. But I, I, there, there is quite a bit to unpack here, in, in my opinion. I mean, firstly, I, I, you know, I guess the what, what's the logic behind this? More hedge funds and private equity funds are, are buying up single family homes. They're renting. Are they renting at above market prices? Is the fact that they're buying all these up and and, and renting them out preventing? I guess you know lower income Americans from purchasing the homes. I, I think I you know. I mean, I think yeah. I think that's the idea, right? They're 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 big competitors in the market. They're very sophisticated. You know, they buy. I think they were seen. They bought twenty percent, twenty eight percent of all the stock in in twenty twenty two. All the volume they they were purchasing, and I think the idea is that that increased competition. You know, folks who typically would be owning real estate. That's the usual way that. Americans hold and build their wealth. That is the traditional way that people have, you know, held their wealth. And the idea of us all being renters from Blackstone is the thing that I, I think they're against. Um, I'm not, but they are. Yeah, I mean, well, is Blackstone not letting me buy the home from from Blackstone? They're competing yeah. with you to buy the home, so the prices go up, right? They're a third. Yeah. Of the I think. I think my issue with this bill is. It seems to be very, you know, sort of obviously targeted against the private equity industry. It doesn't actually really do anything, though, that that might enfranchise, you know, home, you know, others to to become homeowners, right? I mean, 
it, it's not like we're, you know, there, there are other societies, there are other countries that, right, for example, provide, you know, one or 2% fixed rate mortgage loan, for example, right? I mean, well, I mean, what it, what it really identifies homeownership in other ways. I, I'm not really sure, you know, that I think this bill cites statistics like, you know, mo most of these purchases are happening in low income neighborhoods. Um, I mean, that's fine to identify, but, you know, if they're not purchasing these homes, are, are the low income, you know, residents of these neighborhoods going to be purchasing them? Or are they benefiting from any other kind of policy? Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, the, people, I, I don't really understand the, it. The people who really get helped are the the mom and pop investors who typically have owned, you know, single family homes and, and other small real estate like that. And they rent it out and they make a good little income off of it. You know, there's a huge amount of that. Uh, in the U.S., uh, people who own a, a little bit of real estate rent it out and make some money off of it. So that's obviously another group that this would potentially help. Yeah, I mean, if the goal of this is to encourage, you know, home ownership across a broader sort of swath of American society, I, I don't think it really accomplishes that. You know, perhaps it prevents some further deterioration, but, um, you know, I, I don't think it's really solving, um, you know, the policy. I'm, I'm going to, you know, now I'm going out here with a real hot take that I don't, I don't really think that homeownership should be the primary way that we build our wealth in, in the U.S. Like, there's no reason why. But I think traditionally homeownership was the only way because you had to buy your home or at least it was the only thing that you could convince yourself that you would save for because you people can't really keep their hands out of the cookie jar when it comes to their 401k or their stock portfolio. So, well, go invest in real estate because the only way that we can uh, get you is if you're living in your investment, then you're not going to be selling it prematurely to, to go out and consume using it. So like, but, but I, I just don't feel that like long-term that everyone should be holding all of their wealth inside of a single asset that they live inside of. That doesn't really seem to make sense to me. So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a crazy guy who's out there in the edge saying that I think that we should have a lot more renting. It's a lot more modular. There's a lot of benefits, like, you know, economies of scale, and we should have a, a lot more folks who are renting and we should have a lot more of the wealth invested in more diversified portfolios. So not only do I think Blackstone uh, should own a lot of the real estate in the United States, I think a lot of them, a lot of the people, instead of holding their money inside of their house, they should hold it into Blackstone funds. So uh, yeah, I, I, mean, I, I agree. It, it, you know, the fact that like we're trying to build a home ownership society in the United States, I mean, it, it you know, it's an idea like straight out of the 1950s. I feel like it's this kind of idealized post-war way to build to build wealth. Um, what it what it seems to do is is highly concentrate wealth, and then when there's a real estate crash, you know, everyone's kind of underwater. What it also does is it creates, you know, what we saw. I mean, in the great great financial crisis, was it created a massive. Um, you know, massive inflation in, in in certain assets because there was an implied government guarantee behind them as well, right? Mm -hmm. So, look, I I mean, I agree with you, Jeff. Um, you know, folks should be building wealth in a more diversified manner. They should be building wealth in a way that does not distort, you know, asset level prices in, in any particular asset class. Right. So, anyway, I, I think this. I, I, you started out this episode by saying this seems like people are just trying to win points back home in their electoral jurisdiction. That that's probably right, and. You know, I don't think there's much more to to this story. Well, very good. So let's move on from government trying to manage the housing market to government trying to manage climate. The president of the UAE announced a $30 billion climate fund, um, which additionally aims to attract $250 billion of investment into climate-related initiatives by the end of the decade. The fund is called Altera. 
And out of those $30 billion, $25 billion are invested into various climate strategies, $5 billion uh, go towards incentivizing additional investment flows. And they're doing uh, some of this work in collaboration with BlackRock, Brookfield, TPG, and it looks like they've already committed together $6.5 billion to climate-dedicated funds. What do you guys think? Is this going to reverse global warming, cool the planet, get us off of fossil fuels? Is, is this what it takes? No idea. I don't, I don't know what they're going to use it for. Uh, it's $30 billion or $250 billion if you think that you're going to attract all that, that extra money. But, I mean, obviously, you know, invested intelligently probably could solve the solve the entire um entire crisis if, if you put it in, in invested it the right way but uh but yeah obviously it's uh it's it's a, a drop in the bucket compared to what what is generally being invested yeah exactly i mean i think a little of this is you know it's the uae obviously the gulf states are on a per capita basis the largest carbon emitters on the planet and you know have a very strong economic interest in in actually not diversifying away from from fossil fuels. Well, well, hold on. Are they carbon? They're carbon emitters, or are they just helping all of us craving carbon emitters in uh, in the West? Well, well both. Well, both. <laughs> yeah, I think I think if you look on a you know, on a per capita basis, you know the average you know sort of Gulf state citizen, and, and I mean this across the states right. in the Persian Gulf, oh, they are the largest emitters on the planet. And then obviously uh, supply the the fossil fuel for, you know, China, the U.S., Germany, you know, the large industrialized uh, countries to also emit, um, you know, large amounts of of, of whatever car, CO2 and, and other greenhouse gases. Um, so, yeah, I mean, look, a lot of this is probably uh, marketing and, you know, making sure that people think that, you know, these states in the Middle East are, are committed to climate change. And look, and maybe they are. Um, well, the other thing, you know, the, the the real smart version of this is that they are, it's a hedging activity, right? I mean, right. They, these guys, if if this stuff works out and, and they end up, you know, having a big comp- competition to their traditional fossil fuel sources, well, at least they've got investments in all these other uh, areas. So, it's definitely like hedging out their primary risks around like fossil fuels becoming, you know, um, dinosaurs <laughs> for for lack of a better term. And yeah. it seems like it could I mean, be a good spot. In that if someone cracks, you know, cold fusion in, in five years yeah. and the region has not, you know, successfully diversified away from oil. Well, I mean, that, that, well, that's a even better, not even diversification. But if you'd invested in cold fusion in yeah. the first place. Well, heck, you know what? You're the they're the UAE is still going to be pretty well off, despite the fact that their oil reserves have gone down in value based off of that. So, it's the, if if you were to say like where you, you're supposed to diversify into places that are negatively correlated with your existing portfolio, right, or, or as close to zero and if possible right. negative. And so, in this case, these things are negatively correlated with their existing assets, and probably the best place to diversify um, if you were to pick one. Yeah, well, look, I definitely wish them luck. I, for all of us, I hope their investments are very successful in in climate tech, and if that's truly what they'll be invested in, so good for them. Excellent. Moving on to the next topic, two U.S. senators have launched an investigation into PE firms' ownership and involvement in healthcare. There's a particular focus on rural hospitals here, and basically, the investigation centers around private equity firms buying out hospitals, saddling them with debt, then cutting operating expenses, you know, which involves cutting services, cutting staff, which results in um, worse patient care, um, you know, worse outcomes for patients. 
And while that's going on, the PE firms make a lot of money. So the senators allege, what do you guys think? Yeah, we, we've talked a lot about these themes. I, you know, we, I think last week we talked about prisons. I, I generally, you know, I mean, call me whatever a crazy command e- economy guy, but I <laughs> there are just some sectors of the economy that I, I just, you know, frankly do not want private equity ownership over. Probably the medical system is one of them. Prisons is, is another one of them. Um, so, you know, I, I, I do tend to think the incentives are not aligned um between what you know private equity and private equity investors might want and and what is optimal for healthcare i i do tend to think there needs to be you know some kind of an arbiter in the middle to, to solve certain collective action problems maintain a minimum level of care and staffing and, and whatever and you know if that if that eats into margins or, or private equity returns you know you know i think it should because we're sort of dealing with uh a good here that you know, relates to sort of the quality of human life and care and things like that. So, you know, I, I don't know all of the particulars of, of what the senators are citing or, um, you know, what the studies say, but, uh, you know, this does on its face seem seem like a pretty fair um, thing to, to really be, you know, on, on the look for. I, I, I tend to agree with you um, in, in these areas where, you know, uh, there needs to be a delivery of care where the government's deeply involved. But um, yeah, I think in this case, like what we're looking at here is like, what, what, what are they doing? I mean, I don't know what these guys are doing, right? Is it, they're just probing private equity hospital deals, studying it. I mean, in public, you know, you couldn't go and figure out whatever you need to, like, we've seen these studies come out that have obviously been funded by these guys or think takes that are funding the same activity here. There's, I, I, I want to figure out, you know, we've been looking at this for a while. What's on the other side of these studies? the the probes and and all this like what what why are these people doing these things I, I don't think that people at these think tanks write write these papers without getting paid for it basically um i don't think these senators really do spend all their time on probes without having some you know either either campaign uh contributions come from it or obviously you know it can just win them uh points at home uh with the public so obviously that I think that would be the the good version of what these guys are doing here. I think the bad version would be if there's something behind the scenes where there's some folks who are whatever for whatever reason trying to change the way that this industry works and they sit on the other side of it um and have been funding all these things over the past months that we've been seeing. So another yeah, cons- that I that I have no idea. Conspiracy <laughs> <laughs> uh, theory for you. Yeah, there's certainly lots of room for improvement in, in U.S. healthcare. We'll, we'll keep monitoring it. Okay, for our next topic, we'll switch to Elon Musk, who is seeking to raise $1 billion in equity financing for his latest startup, if you can call it that, his latest new venture, XAI, which is basically an AI, an AI company semi-spun out of Twitter or X. Um, and he's doing that to basically compete with open AI and, and kind of steer the development of artificial intelligence back onto kind of the, the righteous path. I think we've all heard him be very critical of open AI and how they're approaching it and saying they're, you know, generally people are being too cavalier with AI. So he's having a run at it as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't really get the the hypothesis behind it. It seems like he's just building an AI company, which is going to be really successful and awesome. but. It doesn't make any sense. He wants to, he doesn't want AI to be developed. So he's going to go develop AI. I mean, like, 
oh, because I want to be the responsible one. No, we don't need people to go develop AI responsibly. We just need the people to stop developing AI. So it's more likely that the reason he wants to limit down the 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 development of AI is to slow down folks who are ahead of him, namely Google, not even really OpenAI and Google are, are both ahead. And, um, but look, I think XAI, I think that, which is, I think Grok, the, the, the XAI yep. LLM that's in, uh, in Twitter, I think it'll be, you know, fantastic for what it, it's supposed to do. Um, I don't think it will end up competing, uh, I don't think Grok will end up competing really with the other with the other ones, um, but I think it will have its own little place as like a way that you get news and process all the all the vast amounts of information in the world. I think it'll be really really important for that and replace a lot of things we do with search. And then his, in in Elon Musk's other properties, namely uh, in, namely in um, in Tesla, they're going to build these robots, and they already have self driving cars, which are the exact same technology used for all the other AI that you see. And so, the robotics angle of this is going to obviously be completely dominant and huge. But um, so, XAI probably has a very very bright future, um, and you know needs definitely more than a billion dollars to do what it wants to do. But I guess if it can use some of the GPU that Tesla has, uh, it can save some money on purchasing that stuff. But um, yeah, seems like from like a, the, the social good perspective, you know, I don't really know if it, if it actually fits in with, with kind of his prior statements of what he's wanted to do. Well, first, I mean, I, I'm, this is like Elon Musk's, Musk's sixth company. Yeah. Uh, with Tesla, SpaceX, X, Neuralink, and the boring company. So I, I mean, I don't know how, how the guy does it. I, I should guess drop the boring company. That one's a fail. Like that's gotta be a failure, right? Like the boring company, that's impossible. The other, it's everything else. Something the one we hear the least about. <laughs> everything else is so cool. Every, every other company is really cool. The boring company is kind of like, uh, okay. I think you're, you're saying the, the name came true. <laughs> it's not interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do think that, look, you know, he's obviously, first of all, I didn't even know he was a co-founder of OpenAI. I didn't know he was on the board, but I guess he did leave the board five or six years ago. So it's, it's been he's quite- like the most, He's like the real founder founder of it. Like he had this meeting with uh, Larry Page or he had a dinner with Larry Page where Larry Page was saying basically that it wouldn't be that bad if AI took over because it's like the, you know, the future light of consciousness and um and he was like, got got afraid and therefore wanted to make like a a competitor to Google. So it's kind of crazy how successful Elon Musk has been that he literally founded OpenAI too. Like, what? Insane. <laughs> now, I on guess. the flip side, he actually is not the founder of Tesla in, in a lot of ways. Um, so anyway, let's keep going. Oh, no, 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 right. Getting for really hot takes now. <laughs> I, you know, I do think with this company, though, that there is a path for him to at least establish a very competitive AI company, run it in a way that, you know, whatever he might consider, quote unquote, ethical, right, or, or be sort of developing AI ethically, and at least use that as a model, right? And and I think what's important is he, he can use that as a model, put that in front of the US government, and, you know, basically say, hey, look, this is how we're run. We're run differently from OpenAI. We're run differently from Microsoft. We don't have a reverse, I've got a reverse, reverse, reverse theory for you. And it's more consistent with his, with his current actions. It's definitely like a 3D chess kind of concept, which is uh he's he's made Grok very like 
funny, sarcastic, and offensive. And I think his goal rebellious, is I think his goal is say what? And rebellious, I think, is the word right. he uses. His goal with with uh right now with that he wants to do is he wants the government to regulate this to slow it down. And I think the best shot he has at that is making the AI really offensive, really, really, you know, say things that are, you know, wrong or not true, or most likely just offensive in ways that galvanize the government to come and say, well, guys, we got to control how this thing works and what it says. So he's going to go trigger his own regulation. That would definitely be 3D chess. And that would <laughs> definitely be something that Elon Musk, you know, one of the few people in the world, I guess, capable of doing that. <laughs> That's definitely 3D chess. I, I just feel like I'd rather see him develop sort of supersonic electric aircraft rather than kind of, I guess, software. You know, I feel like his hardware work is just so impressive. If if you would say that he could do anything, I would have him work on AI. Now, if we're saying that he's actually got a, you know, he's a specifically talented at hardware, then, yeah, I would keep him on hardware. But if he can do anything, AI's the most impactful of them all. That's a fair, fair who perspective. Who cares about going fast in a plane? Who cares about even going to outer space? Like, we're never going to get to Mars. <laughs> all right you heard it here first not happening definitely not happening we'll 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 get some i don't want to go to mars so i mean i'm fine with that and i don't need to see anyone else go there either <laughs> i i want to i want to fly in supersonic aircraft guys <laughs> I, I don't know what you're talking about all right anyway let's talk about the vc firm open view they are uh, in a self-described voluntary suspension at the moment, uh, which basically means they're effectively on pause. They're not deploying new capital. They won't call any new capital. Nothing new from the $570 million fund that they closed in March of this year will be called. Uh, the firm currently employs 74 people. They have a total, or they've raised a total of $2.4 billion. So, you know, it's a sizable firm. And seemingly from one day to the next, they basically hit the pause button um, in a very hard manner. What do you guys yeah, think? I mean, pretty shocking story. Um, I mean, they just they what they just closed a five hundred seventy million dollar fund. They've got two and a half billion under under management. I mean, this is not a small firm. I, maybe this is really just a combination of really unfortunate, you know, idiosyncratic events. I'm not sure. I, I know basically two of kind of three key leaders of the firm were gone. Um, it seems both have left for sort of acute personal reasons. Um, and the third is sort of not what not willing to kind of come back and really take the lead and, and steer the firm, you know, through through these kind of trouble troubling waters. Um, but you know, it, it is quite shocking to see something of the scale effectively, you know, say it's going to wind down, right? I mean, I, I think the least likely outcome here is that you know they're able to generate a new leadership team, um, create a narrative around them. And convince all of their LPs to basically stay and you know uh, honor honor any capital calls and um, you know commit to future funds. So you know I'm, I'm not sure we still quite know yet exactly what's going on here, but it does seem to be just a, a bit of a series of unfortunate events that that's kind of knocked this firm um, really unexpectedly. Yeah, I mean they 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 sent out a letter to their LPs saying that they're basically going to regroup in the next 180 days and figure it out, which that's not a real. Uh, that that's probably you're right. It's probably assembling a new team. I mean, it sounds like they they all left 
doesn't sound like it was some crazy horrible breakup or something like that really just like it made sense for a couple of them to leave the person who was left didn't feel like they wanted to run the whole thing on their own um or they could you know i do think that it is a sign though of you know, I think it, we'll see a lot more shakeups in VC generally, you know, and this is a bigger one, but the only reason that it's a bigger one is because you hear about the big ones. You don't hear about when a small firm, when someone decides, you know what, let's not raise our next fund. And, um, and it's really just, so the, some of these guys in this team had uh, big payouts from Datadog. They made an investment in Datadog that paid them a ton. And, you know, you start to look at the existing portfolio and you start to look at, I'm going to go spend the next three years investing this fund. And then that's going to take another 10 years plus to really pay me out. And it just maybe doesn't, you know, if you're near retirement age at all, and you just got a payout of $20 million or something like this from Datadog, and you're like, okay, well, you know, I'm done. I'm going to go do whatever else I want to do in my life. I mean, it's a very rational choice. Aren't these guys like 35 though? I I thought Mackie was, you know, under 30, you know, only about five or six years ago. Um, Hey, look, you're never too early to retire if you get a big enough payout. You know, <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. I always I mean, spend more time. It's all relative. <laughs> well, well yeah. I'm curious, Adam, if you were an LP in in OpenView and they came back, you know, with a couple of you know ambitious young potential partners that could take over this existing enterprise, would you sort of, you know, how would you be inclined? Um, no, I mean, I, I would say no. It's I know it's 2023. It's venture. These are untested partners. Well, look, and but the, you just, you just don't want them managing the money. Money. Yeah, the that's point. true. That's true. I, 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 I totally agree with that. Um, yeah, make, it makes sense, right? Like a new team is a totally different thing. Like what you're investing in, in venture is the team. Talk about scope creep or, or talk about, uh, you know, creeping the investment thesis creep, right? Like this yeah. is a whole different time. This is like a, a rapid departure uh, of, of the team, right? Completely different team that you're investing in. So yeah, I mean, to, to go back to Elon, you know, if Elon asked me for whatever, say I had it, if he asked me for $100 million to invest in Tesla with Elon there, yeah, sure. If then he told me he was leaving two weeks later, I'd, you know, I'd probably lose my mind. You know, <laughs> absolutely right. no chance. And this uh, is, this is all know who these people are, but, you know, probably not. It would be the other thing is the rest of the team, too, right? They laid off, I believe, the whole team pretty much. And all those people are within 180 days, they're going to have other jobs and things right so they let off tons of the team as well so yeah you're looking at like a full a full shutdown and i think as an lp you might not want to but also they might come back in a different way than you think you know you might come back and they might go hey so here's the team your investment is still good and now you have to tell them why you're not going to be making your capital commitment so it's like you know it's an opt-in versus an opt-out like there's ways that they might phrase it to you when they come back that are a little bit more like you'd have to renegotiate your commitment, you know, rather than like, Hey, do you want to still be in <laughs> as a real optional being right. nice to be thing? Right. I mean, this, this did not trigger supposedly any key person clauses right. in, in any of the, the limited partner agreements, but um, yeah, which I don't know how, by the way, like if, if there were any key person clauses, it would have been, uh, it would have been this, these three guys, right. Or these two, I mean, look, maybe, maybe, well, because look, there's a usually on a fund by fund basis, so, uh, you know, they might've been key people in the last funds, but those funds are fully invested and blah, blah, blah. But this upcoming fund, maybe, maybe none of them were, or maybe they negotiated differently. I don't know. Who knows? We'll come back in 180 days and have a look. Very good. 
for now, we'll wrap it up here. It's been another great episode of This Week in Private Markets. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.